Our reading today is from Luke chapter 5, verse 17 to 32, and I'm reading from the NIV. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee, Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Steve. Uh, I'm the younger Steve. The other Steve, as I've just found out, has just had a 50k run in the Blue Mountains. Goodness gracious. I'd be lucky if I could run like 10 metres without puffing. Well, I have the wonderful privilege of bringing us uh, God's Word from Luke 5 this morning. Uh, But before I begin, why don't I pray uh, and ask God's help in understanding this passage that we have before us today. Father God, thank you so much for your son Jesus. And thank you that we have recorded in Luke's gospel one of the stories of his life, death and resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today through Luke 5. Help us to see the story of the paralytic and Levi with a fresh light. And Lord, I pray that in all this, you would be glorified and our lives be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want us to imagine this scenario. There's a scientist, a very, very well-known, renowned scientist in a Scandinavian country, and has worked tirelessly on a particular project. Day and night, night and day, barely getting any sleep, working 80-hour weeks. Finally, after rigorous testing, he's discovered the cure for cancer. 
Now, eventually, after countless trials and tests, it's been proven time and time again to be 100% effective. Now, for whatever reasons, uh, the medical and scientific bodies all around the world, uh, they decide that this scientist, this particular man, will be the only one with the authority to administer the treatment. The only one who they've granted the power to create and dispense this particular product. However, it is 100% effective and it cures the disease with no side effects and zero chances of any relapse. Now, obviously, this is fiction. We don't live in this world yet. But if this were true, if this were happening, the question I want to propose to you is, is what measures would you take to then get your sick friends or relatives to this man? What measures would you take if all other treatments had proved to be ineffective and you'd seen testimony after testimony of people being completely cured at the hands of this scientist? How far would you be willing to go? What kind of things would you be willing to go? How much money would you be willing to spend? Now, in Luke's Gospel today, we come across uh, two stories of people that had been healed by the great Dr. Jesus. The first concerns a bunch of friends who hear that Jesus is in town, and they know that this is probably their one and only opportunity to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing. And as we'll soon see, they're willing to do just about anything in order to get this man to Jesus. The second healing we see, which may not be as obvious at first glance, is in the calling of Levi, the tax collector, and his salvation. Because amazingly, Jesus compares this to a healing when he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In a play on words, Jesus mixes the metaphors, sickness and sin. The need for a doctor and the implicit need then for healing from that. However, if we pay close attention, uh, we'll see that Luke, through the genius of his orderly account that he's constructed for us today, he's already been leading us to this point, well before Jesus says this punchline out loud. Because you see, all throughout chapter 5, Luke has slowly been building uh, this motif of sin and sickness, the need for Jesus to come and heal us. Luke mixes these metaphors all throughout this chapter, just as he does here in verses 31 and 32. And so I'm hoping as we work our way uh, through the second half of Luke 5, uh, that we'll come to the other end and we'll see that the miracle of healing at the hands of the great Dr. Jesus is much, much more than simply making a paralyzed man walk again. So with that said, uh, we're going to begin at point one, if you have your outlines there. Uh, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So the first thing uh, I want to do today uh, is take us through the structure of Luke 5 as a whole. So Steve took us through the first half last week. We're doing the second half this week. But I want to zoom out a bit uh, so we can begin to understand how the whole chapter fits together in its broader context. Uh, the reason for doing this uh, is to help us make sense of some of these mixed metaphors that I've been talking about. And in particular, uh, this important phrase in verse 17 that reads, The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick because its meaning may not be as clear-cut as it seems at first glance. 
So we already know, uh, for example, that Jesus blends the metaphor of sickness and sin in verses 31 and 32. And that is using this metaphor of a doctor to describe his work of rescuing people from their sin. So when we read, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick, are we to take it literally or metaphorically? Or maybe even both? To gain a little more clarity then, uh, we're going to look back very briefly at the first half of chapter 5, which uh, Steve took us through last week. So the first man we come across uh, out of these two men is Peter, uh, called Simon in the passage. And we come across the second man who's covered in leprosy. Now with Peter, uh, we saw that Jesus granted him uh, the biggest catch of his career as a fisherman. Uh, so big, in fact, the fish were jumping on the boat and beginning to sink it. And this led Peter to fall on his face before Jesus and shout, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Jesus realized his own, uh, so Peter realized his own sinfulness before Jesus and demanded that he go away. So Peter, on the one hand, he acknowledges a profound truth about God, that his holiness and sinful humanity can't mix. But in the very next story, Luke brings us a man who knows he was unclean, a man who knows he wasn't pure, a man who's been sitting on the fringes of society, who by law had to shout, unclean, unclean, as people passed him by. Well, this man saw Jesus, and he knew that there was no hope outside of him of ever becoming clean. So like Peter, the leprous man also understood something profound about Jesus. That despite his crippling disease, despite being seen by everyone else as a sinner or as unholy, as unworthy to be in the presence of God as Peter felt, he knew that Jesus was his only hope of ever being healed. And these two stories are arguably critical for our understanding of the opening verse in today's passage, that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. You see, verse 17 comes off the back of the first half of chapter 5, of Peter's acknowledgement of his sin and of the leprous man's desperate need for healing. So I've done up a little chart here. It's probably a little bit hard to read, uh, but there's an hourglass at the top of the screen. And the stories at the top are fed through this tiny little hole in the middle which combines the categories together. So at the other end, we see the categories of sin and healing combined as one and the same thing. And if we understand this, especially in the story of the paralytic and the calling of Levi, then Jesus' missional statement right at the end of this passage makes much more sense when he says, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This mixed metaphor is what the finishing point of this whole chapter. So my hope is that today, because of all of this, because of the way Luke has structured the chapter, we won't be too distracted by the miracle of the paralytic walking again. As great and as amazing as that is, and as mind-blowing if we were there to see it, but rather that we would see even more clearly the greater miracle which Jesus performs on him, his eternal whole healing through the forgiveness of his sin. And by extension, I want you to see with a fresh understanding that the forgiveness of your sin is actually the greatest miracle you could ever ask for.
Now, don't hear me wrong. Yes, healing is definitely of value. Uh, there's a reason we have so many hospitals and scientists and doctors and nurses and so on. But the forgiveness of your sin, what this does is ultimately guarantees a whole healing of body and soul in the eschatological new life. In other words, what we really have in today's passage is an account of Jesus, a man who wielded far more power and authority to heal than anyone could have ever imagined. So as we dive into the narrative bit now, which makes up most of this passage uh, and point two of this talk, uh, keep your Bibles open if you've got them there with you. Uh, we're looking at Luke 5:17 onwards. And we'll see that Jesus does indeed have the power and authority to heal us of the sickness once and for all. And in point three, how this news should drive us to bring the spiritually sick all around us to the great Dr. Jesus. So point two on your outlines... Jesus heals the paralytic twice. So this narrative opens uh, in verse 17 with Jesus' teaching. He does this quite a bit in Luke's gospel, even up until this point. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we're told, they come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, If I pull up the map that Steve's been using each week, Uh, you'll see that at this point in time, Jesus, in his teaching, he's still in his Galilean ministry at this point. So it's roughly where the arrow is pointing there. So for the Pharisees to come from every village of Galilee, which is all around where he is, and from Judea and Jerusalem, is to say they came from just about everywhere to come see him. Jesus' fame had been spreading, and now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who we see for the first time in this gospel right here in this chapter, they've caught wind of this. They want to see what's actually going on with this man. Now, we're not told in verse 17 uh, the content of Jesus' teaching, uh, but we do know that it had definitely attracted quite a sizable crowd in verse 19. Uh, So large, in fact, that when these friends of the paralytic arrive, carrying their friend on a mat... Uh, They can't find a way to get through all the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and whoever else was there uh, to get this paralytic to Jesus. But despite the size of this crowd, uh, these men aren't deterred. So they end up finding the building where Jesus is teaching. I think probably pretty easy to figure that out. And they climb onto the roof. Now these houses in the first century, uh, as Wes, our senior New Testament lecturer or whatever uh, Dave called him. Sorry, I should respect him much more than that. Thanks, Wes. I've sat under his teaching for so long now, I feel like we have that Aussie vibe together. He could tell you, um, he loves his first century history, that these houses had flat roofs, kind of like what you see in the picture here, uh, usually with a staircase um, or a ladder beside the building so you could get up to the roof. Now, they're not like our houses, where the only reason you'd need to be on the roof is to clean your gutters. Uh, These roofs were used for plenty of other things. So social gatherings, uh, maybe to escape the stale air of the house below. Uh, No air conditioning in those days, unfortunately. Some of it might be to get a bit of sun, uh, enjoy the milder weather, or even to, to grow plants, to dry food, and so on. It had so many uses, you could do just about anything on these roofs. But their construction was also different from our roofs. You see, the standard Queensland tin or tile roof wasn't what they used. Uh, They didn't have insulation and then 
plaster underneath that under the support of a solid wooden frame that was all fancy and approved by the Queensland Building and Construction Commission, these houses were a lot simpler than that. Uh, they often used wood beams, which would have just been large broken branches, straw mats on top of that, and then clay on the top, usually to seal it all up. And so the men, they come to this roof. They climb to the top with the paralytic. And they're so desperate to get their friend to Jesus that they start to dig a hole through it. In their desperation, they weren't willing to let crowds deter them, as would probably deter me. They weren't even afraid to let a roof stop them from getting their friend to Jesus. In fact, this act of literally tearing the roof apart uh, to get to Jesus, well, it ends up being commended by Jesus himself as an act of faith in verse 20. And all I can say to that is it's probably a good thing Jesus wasn't teaching in my house that day. You see, these friends, they had a faith that was willing to do almost anything to get their friend to Jesus. Their knowledge about him led them into radical action. You see, faith, it, it's not just intellectual knowledge. We don't just sit here to fill up with knowledge and then go away and, and forget about it for the week and then come back next week. It's much, much more than that. Faith is something which is acted upon. So Steve, uh, he actually gave this example a little while back, uh, an example of faith, using the example by saying, there's a bomb in this building somewhere. And if you actually believed that, if you actually believed that there was a real threat in this building, you probably wouldn't just sit there in your seats. If you had knowledge that this was a plausible scenario and that it could go off at any moment, you'd probably flee and you'd probably work your way to make as many people leave the building as you could. In other words, you would act on that knowledge. That is faith. So for the paralytic, Jesus was his only hope. And so his friends stopped at nothing to get him there. But it's what Jesus does next uh, that should hopefully show us that Jesus is our only hope as well. You see, after climbing on the roof, after digging their way through, removing the bits as they go along, they lower the paralytic through the ceiling and Jesus turns to him on the floor. The text doesn't tell us what the friends were expecting Jesus to do, but I think you can safely presume they wanted Jesus to heal him. They've probably heard many things about this in the past. And we know the teachers and the Pharisees of the law are all standing there. They're probably looking at the paralytic and looking at Jesus, waiting with bated breath to see what he will do. If we remember from verse 17, these guys, they've come from all over the country to see him. And whether they've asked for it or not, this is more than likely the moment they've been waiting for. I mean, they've no doubt heard reports of his healing, uh, we know, for example, in the crucifixion narrative later on in Luke, that even Herod Antipas, uh, one of these fellows, actually heard of Jesus doing lots of spectacular things and had wanted to see this from Jesus. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law may have been wanting the same. We're not sure. The text doesn't tell us. But we can imagine with eager expectation that they're waiting to see what Jesus is going to do at this point. So Jesus, he looks at the friends on the roof he commends them for their faith and he turns to the paralytic and he says these words. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they know their Torah, their law. Uh, This is actually why Luke, uh, also for the first time, uh, brings in these, they're not just teachers, these are teachers of the law. The text calls them literally law teachers, right? They know God's law, so do the Pharisees, and they know that forgiveness of sins is something reserved only for God. It is something only he can do. It is a right reserved for him alone. And so we're told that these Pharisees and teachers of the law, they they begin thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now Jesus, well, he knows what they're thinking. The text tells us he knows what they're thinking. And if you think about that, this is really a miracle in its own right. In fact, I think that actually adds to some of the comedy of this event, right? That Jesus reads their mind and they don't stop and think, oh, that's pretty amazing. (laughs) They're, They're so oblivious to this. Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so he proposes this challenge to them. He says to them, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But before he gives them any chance to respond to that challenge, he continues, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on and went home praising God. Now there's a lot in here. Uh, We don't have time to go through it all, but I want us to see at least that Jesus, according to himself, has confirmed his divinity in the sight of all these men by healing the paralyzed man. Further on top of that, he calls himself the Son of Man. He uses this title, which those listening, if they knew the book of Daniel, they would know comes from this famous figure in Daniel 7. It's a figure who comes from the clouds of heaven and is given authority and glory and sovereign power and an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. It's a pretty wild title to have. And this simple title, well, Jesus attributes it to himself, calling himself the Son of Man. Once again, for the first time in this gospel, it appears right here. It is a title that is absolutely packed with meaning. And for those listening who knew Daniel would no doubt have known what Jesus was implying by this. You see, Jesus has the authority and power to forgive sin precisely because he is God incarnate. So the Pharisees claim earlier on when they said, who can forgive sins but God alone, in some sense is absolutely dripping with irony. As these intellectuals who studied the scriptures, who are so godly they have to pray on the street corners because they're they're, they're so busy they can't get to the temple. The, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're so busy making themselves pure and holy, waiting for the coming of the Messiah by adding rule upon rule to protect themselves from being stained, awaiting the Son of Man who's been given authority, glory and sovereign power, that they miss the fact that it's happening right in front of their eyes as they speak. And so this brings us to the final point in today's sermon, point three. Jesus calls the spiritually sick. 
So after this, this amazing story, the healing of the paralytic, the forgiveness of his sins, the next interaction Luke records for us is this account of Levi. He's one of the beloved members of the Roman ATO. It's a very simple narrative of call and response. Jesus simply says, follow me. And we're told that Levi gets up and he leaves everything and follows Jesus. Interestingly, the same word uh, for, to describe him getting up is actually the same word used to talk about the paralytic getting up after being healed. But it's what happens next that I want us to focus on today. Levi, after this point, after leaving his tiny little tax booth, hosts a massive party in his house. And he invites Jesus and all of his ATO buddies to come along. Now, the reason this is significant is because the reputation of tax collectors in the New Testament, well, to say it wasn't great would be an understatement at best. You see, if you've ever had uh, run-ins with the tax man here in Australia, and careful what you say after the service because I used to work for them, if you've had issues and you don't like the tax man, multiply that by a thousand and then some, and then you'd probably understand the types of people they were considered to be by the Jews of the first century. Now, I don't have time to get into many details, but, but Jewish people who became tax collectors for the Roman Empire, well, they were often seen as traitors. They were occasionally uh, people that took more than what was due. They were asked for far more than what was required, and they'd pocket them, this themselves. So they had a terrible reputation among the people. And so it's no surprise that the Pharisees here, well, they have issue with Jesus and his disciples eating and drinking with tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners. However, like in the case of the paralytic, the Pharisees still don't seem to understand Jesus' mission. He says, I have come not to call the righteous, which is a direct jab at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for the spiritually sick. And Levi, having left everything to follow Jesus, understood the value of this in a way that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law still couldn't. In fact, Levi's response is arguably typical uh, of many even today uh, who are recently converted, who recently come to Christ. You see, when people come to Christ, usually as adults, they often become the best evangelists for the lost because the knowledge of their own depth of their sin and their depravity before God, the heights of their forgiveness which they have just experienced, well, all of this is so fresh in their minds. So in the case of Levi, he ends up hosting this big party, inviting all of his tax buddies and friends to come and see Jesus. He's inviting them to come and see the man who has the bona fide power and authority to forgive them, to forgive all sin. And so with that, I want to take us back, all the way back to the very beginning, back to the question I asked the beginning of this talk. If you knew there was one man who had the power to cure cancer, and it worked 100% of the time, guaranteed, 
What measures would you be willing to take in order to get your sick friends or relatives to him? How far would you be willing to go? How much money would you be willing to spend to get your hands on that treatment? You see, what Luke has shown us in today's passage is that our greatest need for healing is from something far, far worse than any worldly disease. It is far more insidious, this disease of sin. It is so terrible that Jesus is the only one with the power and authority great enough to heal us of it. And so as we read this passage today, we see the miracle of a paralyzed man walking. I want us to see that the real miracle is actually you and I sitting here today who have trust in Jesus, that you have been healed, that you are a testament to the fact that God still does miracles today. Anyone that comes to place their trust in Jesus is a bona fide miracle that we should all be celebrating. And so the question becomes then, how far are you willing to go in order to bring your friends to him, just like we see in today's passage? You see, the faith of the paralytic's friends, this meant that they would stop at nothing to get him to Jesus, even if it meant literally tearing a hole in someone else's roof. Levi couldn't help but bring all of his friends considered sinners by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to see Jesus after Levi himself was called by him. And so how about you? What lengths are you willing to go to in order to bring your friends and family to know Jesus, knowing yourself that he has the power and authority to forgive them of their sin once and for all? Are you taking advantage, for example, of of the weekends with with soccer or ballet practice where you rub shoulders with other parents? Have you invited that friend who you know is searching for meaning in life? They're just not satisfied with anything they've tried. Have you invited that friend maybe to open the Bible with you and to see Jesus for themselves? Or have you simply made it a habit to pray for your unbelieving colleagues or family members on a regular basis. So I want to leave you with that challenge from what we see here in the text. We see these friends that see the value of Jesus. They see that Jesus is their only hope. They see that he has the power and authority to forgive them. And to be willing then to step outside of your comfort zone, even just a bit, for the sake of those who need eternal healing from the great Dr. Jesus to be willing to think outside the box when situations at work or even at home might hinder you from telling your friends about Jesus. There may be policies in place or other things which stop you. There might even be your own worry that you don't know what to say. You don't know where to even begin. Well, my suggestion is to pray. Think about these people in Luke 5 and prayerfully rely on God's sovereignty to work through you for his name's sake. And I think the best thing we can do now uh, 
is pray for that for all of us here today. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that when he says uh, it is not the well who need a doctor but the sick, that he's referring to himself as the great doctor and the need for forgiveness of sin. Father Lord, I pray that as we look around and we see a world that is riddled with disaster and disease, Lord, that we wouldn't be so blinded as to see the real problem, the real root of all corruption, and that is sin. So Lord, I pray that you would create opportunities in our lives for our friends and families to hear the word through your son and through meeting with us, through the opening of your Bible, through bringing them to church to come face to face with other believers, Lord. Lord, every day, there are countless souls which pass through the night. And I pray, Lord, that you would burden us not to despair, but push us into action that we may consider sin as awful as it truly is and to see Jesus as our only hope. And Lord, I pray that you would help us and encourage us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to go out into this world and declare the praises of your holy name through whom we have salvation. Amen.